0: Welcome to Culture Eats Strategy. Eats Strategy. With your host, entrepreneur Jamie J. Jamie J.
1: On this podcast, we unpack the most powerful intangible culture. culture. Culture is way more than a mission statement or words on a wall. It's
0: how a company behaves, it's what informs every decision, action, and reaction. Culture is the invisible hand. The true north that guides every organization. And if you create a legendary
1: culture, you will build a legendary company. A legendary company. Now, here he is, Jamie J. Jamie Hello, this is Culture Eats Strategy with Jamie J. That's me. I am your friendly host. Uh, love it. Hashtag leading with kindness. Uh, I'm a big fan of culture, big fan of strategy. But culture, in my opinion, trumps strategy every single step of the way. As you'll see, I have an unbelievable episode for you today. Uh, we're going to be really excited. I'm talking with Micah Rowland. And uh, he's not your everyday builder. And that's probably because he doesn't build homes. He doesn't build cabinets or even the software that he used as an engineer. He's the chief operations officer, the COO of Fountain. And Micah builds people, teams, and processes you probably never heard me say processes, right? People, teams, and processes that has taken multiple companies from 50 to 250 people and from 5 million to 30 million in revenue. So you can learn a lot more um, about Fountain by going to git.fountain.com. It's hiring software for the modern workforce. As you all know, there's a perfect segue. I am the founder and CEO of Bottleneck.Online. I like to make sure that it's fully transparent there. And uh, we hire virtual assistants for growing companies, administrative assistants, graphic designers, all of that kind of stuff. And what better topic than what we can have today is how to hire somebody. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about uh, Micah's healthy degree of skepticism for success stories for templates for things like that we're going to be talking about why it's higher why this whole higher slow fire fast is a myth i can't wait to get into that one and a lot more so without any further ado let me introduce you to micah roland how are you micah
0: i'm doing great jamie thanks for having me on the podcast
1: I I cannot thank you enough. We had an incredible pre-interview conversation, and I am super excited. But before I hop into a couple of these topics that we've outlined there, um, can you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you're doing?
0: Sure. So you mentioned I'm at
1: Fountain right now.
0: Fountain is a SaaS company, software as a service, and we provide a service that helps many different types of companies hire efficiently through the use of automated communications and tools to attract talent and interview and hire and onboard them. I haven't been at Fountain for that long. It's been about a year. But I have a few different chapters in my career prior to this. I started my career as a software engineer out of college and spent a few years in the defense industry before going back to grad school at Stanford, where I did my MBA, left there and spent a few years in the consulting firm McKinsey & Company, where I served clients in multiple geographies around the world and many different types of industries and left there to go to Starbucks Coffee Company, where I worked in corporate strategy and brand management for a few years. That brought me to the beginning of 2012, where I wound up leaving Starbucks to come back to the Bay Area and get into the world of startups, where I've been since early 2012, and have had a variety of roles in operations, customer success, a little bit of business development, and even a little bit of sales and revenue leadership across the board in software companies before joining Fountain last summer.
1: Well, thank you for the overview. So, culture, for me, how, how, before we hop into this, what do you define culture? And and I would love to hear the value that you place on culture. In the previous organizations that you've been with, and then, of course, now with your startups?
0: I think culture is the way that we collectively behave Mm. together as humans. So it's a combination of routines that we go through, rituals that we've enacted and that we've put into place in order to accomplish certain things, and collective values that we ascribe to. Or that we agree to and try to behave by. So some of these things are things that you can articulate and write down. Others are much more difficult to articulate, but you can you can detect them if you talk to people who come from a culture and you ask them questions about why we do the way why we do things the way that we do, how we make choices, how we enact decisions in an operating environment, whether that be a company or a nonprofit organization or a governmental organization. So as you said before, I think culture is of paramount importance to every organization in terms of achieving its aims. And I think a company that has, or an organization that has no strategy probably won't be very successful, but it is also fair to say a company that has a bad culture or a culture that is, that is not set up to empower people and to help people bring their best to the organization and to delivering its aims is not going to be successful, certainly not over the long term or not as successful as it could be.
1: Uh, thank you. <laughs> totally agree with you 100%. Um, now that we have a good understanding, I have a good understanding of what your perception of, of culture is to be, much of which I agree with. Um, we talked a little bit about uh the healthy degree of skepticism that you have for certain um uh I guess playbooks or templates, if you will, uh, on, on success. And I would love to hear you counter that, um, because it's a big belief. Like if you do this, this, and this, you're gonna be successful. Right. So we talked
0: a little bit about that and also one of my favorite Silicon Valley isms to pick on, which is the higher slow, fire fast mm. way of thinking. And I have felt in my in my journey through Silicon Valley that this is something that is an, it, it's it's something that a lot of companies like to they hear and they like to try and act on it and it makes you feel feel good about yourself. Oh, I have somebody in, in a role in my company who is not, not successful, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of them quickly. And if you believe, as I think some people believe, that there are lots of so-called bad apples scattered throughout the world of employees and working people, then this, I think, might be a good way to act. But actually, my experience has been, and my belief is that most people who... Who occupy the working world, and certainly most people who wind up in the startup industry or the startup space, they actually do want to do a good job. They actually do bring to work a really powerful and unique set of gifts and talents. And so if someone is not succeeding in their role, I think the hire-so-fire-fast way of thinking is very destructive, not only in terms of Costs associated with hiring and replacing people, but in terms of the way that it impacts culture. So, if you have somebody that you've hired into your company and they're not meeting the bar for performance, whatever that bar is, there are many things that I think need to be examined before you make a decision to cut them loose. So, just to list a few that are really important, you need to ask yourself if that person's manager understands how to onboard, coach, and develop that person in their role to help them be successful. I think managers are in a, in a unique position to help an employee be successful. And I think the, the job of a manager, the job of a leader in an organizational context is really to help their people be successful. So if somebody in a management role has never managed people before, If they don't have a lot of experience making all of the decisions that are involved in managing, whether that's hiring decisions, compensation, promotion, decisions about how to design somebody's job, how to structure their incentives, that management role is crucial. And so if you have somebody who's never done it before or somebody who's not very experienced, you need to examine whether or not that manager is providing everything that the individual in the the company needs in order to be successful. The second thing that needs to be examined is incentives. I've found that many companies, especially companies that are designing their business model or are in the process of building a business model that has not yet proven to be successful, they make these assumptions about the compensation model that's going to work for a given job or a given group, and then they kind of forget about it. But if you're in that job, as probably all of us can attest to, if you're in that job, the money that you take home every two weeks or every month is of very high importance to you. It's how you take care of your family and how you pay for your life. And so something that's going to affect your compensation is of paramount importance to you. And so if If a manager made a decision about the amount of your bonus or the way that your bonus is going to be assessed and given to you six months ago, and in the six months since then, you have been asked to do a different type of work, you've been asked to do it at a different pace or working with different people, the way that that incentive impacts your work is... Of first order importance. And so I think it behooves companies that are changing rapidly to constantly be thinking about whether or not incentives for employees are aligned with what you've asked them to do. And if what you've asked them to do has changed, you'd better ask yourself whether the incentives that you're giving them are still creating the right environment where they want to do that, where they're going to be better off if they do that. It's never wise to ask somebody systematically to take action that will not result in financial gain over the long term. Mm. You can do it, but you're relying on a different motivator. And so that's going to draw from a well of motivation that needs to be replenished. So that's the second thing that needs to be examined. A third thing that needs to be examined is the team environment and the broader company environment that they're in. If that individual is in a group or in a company where they have not been given the opportunity to contribute in a way that is motivating to them. Over time, their performance is going to degrade. And most elements of what an environment can do to motivate a person are not up to that person. Most of those elements are coming from decisions that the manager makes, decisions that the executive team makes, and above all else, decisions and the personality that the CEO is propagating into the company. Because I think most company culture really comes from CEO personality. Uh, I've, I've found that in most of the companies that I've worked for, the things that I might liked most about the company were things that I liked about the way that the founder lived her or his life. And in most companies, the things that I found myself not appreciating about the company were things that I also didn't appreciate about the way that the founder behaved. And those things show up in the culture because culture comes from the founders, especially.
1: Uh, You know what, that's great. So the first thing is the manager role, that's understanding they have to know how to onboard, develop, and coach. I love that, systems, processes. But we also have to understand those systems and processes need to be flexible with regards to the financial comp- compensation. Yep. So there is an onboarding process. There's setting of expectations is huge for me yep. because, because that's, that's the driver. I think the underlying driver as, as far as what does your job role and responsibilities include and yep. that, that goes to that second thing, the finance compensation. And the third thing is the environmental elements. Um, from what I understand, and you said the CEO personality has a lot to do with it. Why? Well, because the CEO kind of created everything in the first place. Yep. And if you don't buy into a certain vision or understand what that mission is to get to where you aspire to be, i.e., vision, yep, it's going to be really hard to, yep. to travel down that road. And you're right, uh, as I said right in the beginning, people don't leave companies; they leave managers. Mm. Yeah. So, under, go.
0: Did you have something to say? I couldn't agree more. I oh, believe okay. managers, not companies.
1: Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of recap that. You talked about being slow to hire, um, quick to fire. It's pretty much a myth, and that goes back to I think setting expectations again. Because if you're not doing a good onboarding process. When you're when you're hiring, buddy, if you're not going through that and talking about developing this role and coaching them along the way, so many people out there. I'd love to get your feedback on this one, um, and then I want to talk about something else that uh, that that uh, as far as problem solving is 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 concerned. So many people think they want to hire a rock star, <laughs> and I'm doing. If you're listening to this, I'm in air quotes right now, rock star, and that kills me. Because you can get the smartest person in the world, the person that's most qualified to be there, but if you don't coach them, um, if you don't give them direction, if you don't set expectations, if you don't design a roadmap for that person or a ball field for them to play in, the boundaries for them to play in, you're setting yourself up for for, for failure. Uh, what say you? I 100% agree.
0: There are so many things to say on this point. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll start with a few that just come to mind in a sort of disorganized fashion. One is, if you want to hire rock stars, you'd better be willing to pay rock star pay. I've seen many companies that seem like they they they, they talk the talk. They say they want to hire rock stars, and yet they want to pay at the 50th percentile. And so that that, to me, is a mismatch that is possibly going to allow you to hire the rock stars but certainly will not allow you to keep them over the long term. I'm not implying here that I'm a rock star. I, certainly there's a lot of different dimensions on which to evaluate talent and I'm not good at all of them. Uh, I think the, the the way to to build and and bring together a culture that is one in which so-called rock stars can thrive is to find ways to evaluate people and reward people according to real accomplishment and achievement. The challenge though, as a, as a company is that if you're in a, in a startup environment, you're in an environment where you are building new elements of the business. They don't exist. You're not bringing somebody in to do a job that has a hundred people in the job where you can compare their performance on empirical metrics with 99 other people you're building somebody. Are you bringing somebody in to build a group a role a job that hasn't been entirely figured out yet mm. then it's it's it can be very difficult to objectively measure measure performance and a big part of that performance is having somebody who can actually do the invention of the system and participate in the invention of the system while they're doing the job right so the old adage is retooling the airplane while it's trying to fly or retooling the bus while it's trying to drive. I think actually having a culture that enables people to do that is not a trivially easy thing to do. Because right. if, if you as a manager or if I as a manager assume that I know the right way to do everything and subtly create an environment where my team only waits to hear me tell them what to do then what's going to happen is the the organization is only going to grow and succeed at a rate that is enabled by my mental capacity to make decisions and to enact change. Now that's, you know, I might be a very high capacity individual, but nobody is as high capacity as as individuals around you. And so the task of the leader in a startup environment is to actively encourage The finding of people and the cultivation of people in a way that allows us to get them creatively engaged in the problems around us. And if you can't do that, then you're going to be a failure as a company, I think. But it's hard to do that because there are problems that I may have seen before that a more junior member of my staff hasn't seen before. And so the temptation for the leader is always, always, always going to be, you know what? I can get this done more quickly if I just do it myself. or I can get this done more successfully, more effectively, more completely than if I leave it to so and so because so-and so has not seen this before, or they haven't seen it ten times like I have. And so I'm just gonna do it real quick. Or I'm gonna, and this is the more subtle version, I'm gonna tell them what to do, everything, how to do it, right? So that that temptation is a terrible one because actually, in the short run, the organization would be better off. If I built the Excel model or if I designed the comp system, if I handed them a solution to this problem, but in the long run, the organization will not be better off. And so that's a dilemma that managers have to face. And if you bring people in and you're not willing to take the responsibility for the risks that are that are inherent in allowing them to have the freedom to fail. Then you can't build a successful organization. Oh, and so you've got to be willing. To there's
1: there's a double-edged sword there.
0: Right?
1: Yeah, I, oh my gosh, Micah. There's that that's kind of a double-edged sword. It's a thin line. I'm I'm a huge fan of creating a process. Being that person as the owner of this company, I want to be able to create this particular process. I want to be able to go through this workflow as if it was me doing it, but I understand that i need to do something as if it's the last time i'm ever going to do it and document that process so that i can hand it off to somebody else i need to focus on the thirty thousand foot level i need to focus on growing the business going to events shaking hands doing things like that for the but i need to be i need that whole saying you need to work on your business not in it i call bullshit to that um especially in the beginning because you definitely need to be in your business to create the systems and the processes. However, you said something that was very intriguing to me. It, 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 you said that you have to be responsible, uh, 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 something, something like that, that you had to be responsible. You have to stuff.
0: take responsibility for the failures yes.
1: of people who are in your team. Exactly, because when you hand that off to someone else, they're living in that world. I am not, you are not. That person's job, role, and responsibility is in that world. Guess what? They're going to make it better. They're going to make it better because they live in that world, not us. But we're there, and we created it. We understand how to communicate effectively.
0: Yep. Well, I think and anyone who has worked in a team that I've led would probably recognize something that I try to say, which is, People closer to the problems are always going to have a more, a deeper, more nuanced, more insightful perspective on what a potential solution might be. Now, their perspective may be limited by a lack of exposure to other broader problems that are in the business, but it is very important, I think, as the leader of a team, as somebody who is influencing the way that we behave, the culture, the context, and the decision-making processes to work overtime to rely on people who are in the job, doing the job, when we try and implement solutions to a problem that we see. There is nothing more important, I think, in startup building than being able to do, being able to do that. And what I've found as I've grown more senior in my career and as I've been further and further away from the frontline problems mm-hmm. of whatever, dealing with the customers or dealing with the various levers of controlling the business, what I found is that it is easier and easier for me to, without realizing it, take on a very arrogant and overweening perspective about what we should do, right? Because I was, oh, we should, we should just do this. And the just do this actually encompasses a very complex set of things that I don't nearly understand how long they're going to take or how much money they're going to take or what is gonna be involved in doing them along with the other 16 things that are on this person's plate. So I think it behooves leaders to be very thoughtful about when they ask their staff to achieve things that go outside the boundaries of what we're already set up to do in a routinized way. You talked about process and one, one enemy that I think is really important to combat in terms of startup culture and building startup culture is codifying and establishing a process before you're actually sure if it's the right process. Mm. So this happens all the time in performance-oriented organizations because we want to figure out how to bring people in and get them performing according to a certain set of KPIs. And then we want to say, okay, this person can handle this many accounts. Or this person can bring in this many new customers in a given quarter, and they're going to be worth this much, and we're going to pay them this way. If your company has not actually shown that you can deliver repeatable results around those KPIs, Mm -hmm. it may be the wrong time to set in place the entire process and then move on to other problems in your business. Because you better make sure that you can actually bring people into the business educate them, train them, and set them loose to perform against those KPIs at, at a scale that is going to accommodate most people coming into your business. Not just one or two people who are, who are the first folks at the company, and by the way, have a, a larger pool of equity. So they have more at stake, they have more skin in the game, they're more invested in the culture. So they're willing to work extra over time beyond what anyone else will do. And then you bring in the new person who doesn't have the same incentives, who doesn't have the same history with the culture, who doesn't have the same knowledge and learning, and you expect them to perform at the same level in the same time frame, be thoughtful before you say, this is the accepted process. You've got to make sure that it works before you codify that and establish that. And I think companies, we want repeatability because we want to be able to say to investors, we're going to put 16 more people into this system, and out the other end of the system will come this much new revenue or this churn profile or whatever the KPI that we're working to accomplish is. But until you actually have repeatability, it's very important to be fluid and flexible with making sure that you are you are planning for the long term rather than just assuming things that you haven't actually proven.
1: Mm. Oh uh Micah this is this is such gold for me. Um and because y- I love the fact, too, that earlier you had mentioned these team leaders, uh, business leaders, managers, whomever it is, um, they need to be able to be prepared to have the time, spend the time training, um, but they also need to be flexible because, as companies grow, we understand different things happen. A certain set of, of problems happen at 25. Uh, A certain other whole new set of problems happen at 50, 100, 250, 1,000. All kinds of new problems happen at these different points, and they're started off by these little friction points. As my good friend, Miha Matliewski says, he says, you have to always remain in beta. I love that. No matter how long you're around, um, because you're always adjusting as you scale. Um, And I think that's a big part of a manager's role.
0: Um, I agree. I agree. And I think there are a couple of key inflection points in the maturity of organizations that are really important to pay attention to. One of them is, I actually really think this may link to, I think it's Dunbar's number, that humans have a sort of an innate capacity to manage perhaps 150 relationships, but not more than that. What I've seen is that when companies get to a certain size, and I think it's roughly 150, what happens is that the way of working that got us to this size is actually not just adequate, inadequate to get us to the next size, but it's actually counterproductive. Mm. And so what you see is small companies, individuals who are in those companies, succeed by basically looking at problems and saying, oh, no solution to this. Uh, nobody whose job it is to handle this. I, I'm going to handle it. I'm going to power through. And so you have all of these people who get inculcated into a startup culture where the dominant mode of activity is to jump into things, roll up your sleeves and get it done. Now, what happens when you get to be a company that has multiple functions and sub that need to plug in and interact with each other in order to accomplish something? in a a cross-functional way, is that it actually is counterproductive if one person jumps into a particular problem and tries to handle everything, because you find they can't actually do all the pieces of the work that are required in order to have organization-level outcomes that are acceptable or that are satisfactory. And so what you find is people who are successful in early-stage startups, they sort of get allergic to successful cross-functional work. Because in successful cross-functional work, A, you have to be tolerant of meetings. Because meetings are how information gets disseminated and how we coordinate our activity to make sure that over the course of the next week, while well, I'm doing my portion of the work, you can go away and do your portion of the work, and Sally and Jimmy and Robert can do their portions of the work so that we come back together and we've actually made progress. Instead of me working on my own in an uncoordinated way, and then actually we come back together and things are all out of joint. Mm. So in a company that reaches this point where cross-functional work becomes the way that you get things done, people who have been successful in early stage startups can struggle. And it's because the thing that made them really successful was the willing to go do whatever needed to get done. Whereas in a cross-functional organization, what's going to make you successful is the ability to modularize the work and to engage multiple people who can bring their individual talents to bear in a way that is coordinated, that moves forward, and also doesn't disrupt those people's other work. Yeah. They have other stuff that they have to get done. So I actually think that's one of the key things that, that hampers companies when they get to that 150 or so person mark is they are full of individuals who are accustomed to succeeding in that way. And those people actually don't like it if you try and bring cross functional work. They say, ah, oh, don't bother me with all these meetings. This is a waste of my time. This is bureaucracy. And in, in, in fact, it's a different way of operating that is necessitated by having a larger organization where you can't accomplish anything without involving multiple people. And I think that's a real challenge for a lot of startups when they hit that stage because all the people that you that you rely on to get things done, all the people that you build up as cultural icons within that company and you celebrate for success, those people suddenly are not successful anymore or they're not as successful as they were. And in some ways, they're counterproductive because they're used to charging around and doing whatever they need to do to get the job done when there's somebody over in marketing or there's somebody over in operations who goes wait a minute you said that i was supposed to be doing that so why are you doing that and that's what that's one of the key transition points that i think companies in silicon valley run into a lot of trouble because companies in silicon valley they want rock stars who can get things done and oftentimes at that point what you really need to start thinking about is people who are very effective at managing and enacting cross functional change that's a different set of skills
1: a hundred percent this is also where behavior and culture and communication go hand in hand um, and that's why job roles and responsibilities need to be so clearly defined yep uh, and and I have my staff write their own job roles and responsibilities now I final say of course <laughs> uh, d- making sure that they're on the right track but that's specifically the reason why And one of the magical things I've seen come out of this, now, of course, we don't have a large company. We're very small, 16 staff. But what I found is the staff members are talking to one another. They're clarifying certain job roles and responsibilities where they might have overlapped before. They're not now. And we're reviewing them. We started our job roles in 2019. We're coming up with 2019-R. 2019-R is revised. And we're having another look at that. It's They're all due August 1st. And it's really neat to be able to see that kind of grow within our organization. It empowers them. Um, they're making up what their job role is through their zone of genius. And I found it just to be completely refreshing because they're excited about doing this. And you're giving them an opportunity to um, have a voice. Yeah. Um, their opinions matter.
0: Well, and and probably something else you're also doing that you may or may not be aware of is you are making it okay for them to make mistakes and to fail at certain parts of whatever this transition entails whether it's mm. hey, you've been doing this eight times a week and actually I'm going to ask you to do this other thing four times a week and so some of those eight times a week activity A that you were doing are not going to be not going to be up to snuff That's okay, because I'm asking you to take on this other thing. I think that having a a culture that is tolerant of mistakes, not mistakes that are born out of carelessness or negligence, but, but mistakes that are born out of experimentation and thoughtfully pushing the envelope is absolutely crucial for building companies. Because if you criticize people for every mistake they make, regardless of what caused it, then you're going to build a culture where people are afraid to take on Mm -hmm. new stuff because it's going to cause them to make mistakes. And they know that. Even if they are afraid to admit it, they know that. And so they're going to shy away from new opportunity. They're going to shy away from experimentation. And if people are shying away from experimentation in a growing company, then you are a failure. That's right. I think that that is so important and it's again it's very easy as a manager to lose sight of that because we have our objectives we have our our goals to reach the next fundraising milestone or to get the delivery of metrics that we intended to deliver to the board for next quarter and in in shooting for those things it's very easy to to overlook the natural cost of what change imposes upon the organization. Um, I think that that raises one more thing that I think it's really important to call out in companies, which is the very fine-grained distinction between finger-pointing and understanding root causes for things. It's extremely important to understand why certain things happen. And it isn't always obvious. There are many biases that can lead us astray when we're looking for root causes. There's confirmation bias. Oh, I kind of thought that that was what was causing this. And so I'm going to assume that it was causing this. There are biases around uh, our overestimation of our own abilities and our underestimation of luck. There are so many biases, but if you're not regularly taking the time to understand why something went wrong. And I mean, really understand it. It's because Micah didn't do this or Micah did this when he wasn't supposed to do this. That is difficult in today's environment Mm. because oftentimes it gets labeled as finger pointing. If you indeed have a culture where mistakes are okay, then actually looking for root causes is okay. Because I can say, you know what, guys, this happened because I neglected to include this factor in the financial model. Now we're dealing with the consequences of that. But that root cause searching is very, very important. And if you stay away from doing that because you're afraid that by identifying a root cause, I may actually offend somebody on the team or make them feel bad, then you're going to overlook an opportunity to grow and to learn. And so I think a lot of companies will say, we don't want finger pointing. Well, I don't want finger pointing either, but I darn well do need to understand why these things are going wrong so that I can tell somebody on my team, even if it's me, how to do something differently. Because in a company that's constantly changing things in the service of becoming better over time, things are going to go wrong because people are going to do things in a way that was good enough last week, but isn't good enough this week. Or it was good enough in a different company, but not in our company because our customers or our business or our pricing or something about the environment is different. So I think it's really important to be able to do search for root causes without finger pointing, but don't be afraid of a little bit of finger pointing in order to get there.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I think, I, I, I totally think that that's okay. A little bit of that is okay. Too much, obviously no good, but yes, totally. If, if to- people are secure, there's no reason
0: why having a finger pointed at you no. is a bad thing, right? Again, well, we go back to culture, right? It's, yeah. it's a good cultural environment. It, it provides- One of the experiments that I often engage in myself is I ask myself, if this person in this job, if they knew, that no matter what they did or didn't do, they weren't going to lose their job, they weren't going to lose their livelihood, what would they do? What would they bring to the office? What would they push towards? I am a believer that creating an environment where people feel secure, obviously there are limits to what you can do here. We have to run performance-oriented organizations, so there are limits. But I'm an environment where I believe if you create an environment where people can be secure, then you have a hope of getting the best of what they have. Yep
1: they're afraid you'll never get it. Yep. And that's creativity on down the road. And right. thank you so much, uh, Micah. This has been incredible. I want to go really fast before we wrap up because we're almost out of time here. But if you can really quick tell, tell people how they can get in touch with you um, and, and if they want to learn more about Fountain.
0: Sure. You can find me on LinkedIn by looking at Fountain's profile where you can just search for me, Micah Rowland. And I would suggest if people want to ping me on LinkedIn, just put a note in your connection invite that you heard the podcast because I do get a lot of invites that are not necessarily ones that I want to accept. And this will help me to distinguish yours
1: from the ones that are not not legitimate. Perfect, perfect. And before we go, uh, we've got about a minute. Is there anything you'd like to say before we wrap up?
0: I guess just that it pays to constantly remind yourself most people out there in the working world want to do a good job. Most people out there in the working world, they're unique, creative, and talented human beings. And as a leader, as a manager, even as a peer, the thing that you can do the most good for your organization by doing is to figure out how to unlock and get that person to bring to the table everything that they have to offer. What creates that is A feeling of security, a feeling of belonging, a feeling of being valued, and that is going to be a little bit different for every person. So you've got to figure out how to do that. Anything that creates the opposite of that is not going to help you.
1: Michael Rowland, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Uh, Again, to learn more about it, uh, you can go search for uh, git.fountain.com is the web address, um, look up Micah on LinkedIn. Mention Culture Eat Strategy uh, so that he'll pay some attention to you there and, and bring you on board and, and help you out on your way. Um, without any further ado, we got to wrap here. We went a little bit longer. Uh, Micah, thank you. Thank you. It's thank great you. To be here. You knocked it out of the park on this one. So I really appreciate that. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in to Culture Eat Strategy. Don't forget, go like us, rate us, and review us uh, on Apple Podcasts. Um, and if you don't give us five-star give us three-star tell me why Uh, I want to learn and I want to get better Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we are out Uh, I am the host jamie jay of culture eats strategy. Talk to you soon